0: All right, good morning, everyone. Why don't we start heading back to our seats, and we want to continue these conversations, really, after service, go out to the, uh, you know, table, grab coffee, pastries, continue your conversation, as well as stop by the table for the winter getaway. They've got donuts again. They're trying to entice you to come by, and we hope you you take advantage of it and be lured in because there's some good things over there. Okay, but uh, uh, if you're new here, you're here here for the first time, let me tell you what we're doing uh, in October and November. We are going through the book of Exodus at a very high level. And what I mean by high level is we're not going to go chapter by chapter, but we're going through kind of the highlights with a lens of asking the text, who is the Lord? That's a question we are coming to. Because it's a central question in the book of Exodus. And there's no better place to learn about who is God. Because in Exodus chapter 5 verse 2, we're going to look at this next week. Pharaoh says to Moses, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And whether you've been a Christian a long time or you're just exploring Christianity, this is a question we want to look at today from Exodus chapter 3. So please give your attention to the reading of God's word.
1: The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. And the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, and that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that this morning you would send your spirit here so that we would be able to encounter you just as Moses did on that faithful day many thousands of years ago. Give us eyes to see, open our ears so we would hear, and allow our hearts to be receptive to all that you have in store for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said uh, just before the scripture reading, we are looking at the question of who is the Lord? And maybe there's no better text to understand who he is in Exodus chapter 3. And this morning, there's so much in here, that I had a really hard time trying to whittle down, how do I want to approach this text? And I think I want to do it in three ways. I want us to look at the fact that we have a God here who shows himself to be a God who seeks after us. That's the first thing. The second thing is we see a God who loves to disrupt, a God who is a disruptor. And the third thing we see here, we have a God who is he is. And those are the three headings under I want to try to organize our time and our teaching this morning. But let's consider the first thing. We have a God who seeks, a God who pursues us. Because, and we see this mostly in the first few verses here, because I want us to go back and think a little bit about who Moses is and where we find him in this story. And we saw last week, this is a period in his life when everything had gone wrong. We see him here tending the flock of Jethro his father-in-law. And we have to ask the question, how did he get here? So if you weren't here last week, just remember his life circumstances. He was born a Hebrew, adopted by daughter of Pharaoh, which makes him royalty, right? He was raised in the palace as a prince of Egypt. He had received the best possible education known in the ancient world. He was a rising young leader in Egypt, which was the global superpower of his day. I mean, he had a whole lot of life going for him, right? He had power, influence, admiration. He was wealthy. We would all look at him and say he was wildly successful in every way. And as a reader, you begin to think, okay, God is going to use this guy just like he did with Joseph, maybe place him in the halls of power in Egypt to free the children of Israel. I mean, we all know that play worked once in Genesis. Well, let's run that play again, you know, until it stops working. And you begin to think this is going to happen. Yet in a single moment of arrogance and anger, what did Moses do? He ended up murdering somebody. And with that one mistake, he loses everything. He's a fugitive on the run from Pharaoh. He finds himself in the wilderness, which means a desert. Don't think trees, think desert, okay? In Midian. Midianites were semi-nomadic people. They traveled around. And he is a humble shepherd. He gets married. He starts a family. And by the time we meet him here... It's been 40 years since he was that rising star in Egypt, a man of supreme self confidence, success, influence, and all of that gone, and he's just a lowly shepherd in the wilderness of Midian. And maybe, you know, he's kind of content there. The thing you begin to understand is you never, ever see Moses talking about God. Did you notice that? We're at chapter 3, and we've not seen him once praying. We've not seen him once looking for God. Even in the hard things of life, he's not moving towards God. His heart is not even really open, and his life's pretty tough. I mean, it's bad enough he's in shepherd, which is, we saw last week, a detestable profession to the Egyptians. And to add insult to injury, in 40 years of living in Midian, He's not even tending his own flock. Did you notice that? I mean, what about his progression in his career? He's tending his father-in-law's flock. And whether it's in today's world or the ancient world, working for your father-in-law is just complicated. I think we can say that, right? It's complicated. And you, you look at all this, and we don't have Moses having a sense of wanting to turn to God or to look for him at all. And what do you begin to see in these verses? Moses encounters a bush that burns but is not consumed. And he's drawn to this thing. Not because he loves God, but out of some scientific curiosity because he's saying, you know, I've seen a lot of fires in my day, but I've never seen one that burns where it doesn't consume the wood. So he's like, I'm going to go check it out. So he's not pursuing God. He's not seeking God. And yet, he's content to live in his life. And then all of a sudden, this burning bush is there. And he's just interested and is drawn to it. And in verse 4, this is where God actually calls him. And he says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. I mean, think about this. God has been watching Moses this whole time. He knows every move he's making. He's looking intently on Moses. He sees Moses moving toward the bush, but God is the one calling out from the bush. God is the one seeking him. He's pursuing him, even though all Moses had was just some maybe mild curiosity at best. And notice, God doesn't just call him generically by saying, hey, you over there. He calls him by name. He says, Moses, Moses. And some of you know, in a Hebraic way, the doubling of the name, it means something. It says, hey, deep affection and love and something familiar. This is a God who cares deeply about Moses and he calls to him. Now, I I can imagine that perhaps that this may have been an incredibly healing thing for Moses. And here's why. Here's a God coming to him, pursuing him at a really, really low point in his life. He's not coming to Moses at the height of his power, his influence, his popularity. It didn't happen to him when he had something to offer God. Instead, he finds him at his utter worst. When he feels like, I'm probably utterly useless in the grand scheme of things. And this is when God calls him. And maybe this is the first encounter for Moses in his life. Who comes to him, not because someone wants something from him, but just for his sake. Just for his sake. But this is how God pursues, he seeks. And, you know, maybe you're in here because you're mildly curious this morning. Maybe you're just here because someone invited you. And that's great because here's what I want you to know. If you're going to meet God, you're going to meet the God who's going to call you by your name. And as much as you think you've shown up by mild curiosity, God may be calling you by name very specifically, not because you're useful Not because you're a good person, not because you're successful, but just because he loves you. He meets us at our weakest moments. Hudson Taylor, who was a great missionary to China in the 1800s. I mean, he spent 50 plus years ministering in China. Towards the end of his life, uh, he was asked, you know, do you feel satisfied and encouraged about all that God has done in your ministry? You know, and he thought about it and he responded kind of in an u- unexpected way. He said, you know, it seemed to me that God looked over the whole world to find a man who was weak enough to do his will. And when at last he found me, God said, he's weak enough, he will do.'" what is he saying? He's saying the call on his life and whatever fruit that was born in his ministry was the work of God himself. God did not call Hudson Taylor because he was some giant man of faith or he had some incredible gifting. But God called him because he called him. And he said that was enough and God did what he did. You know, and maybe some of you are here and you're not, you're not really sure what to think about God because I think the average person in Silicon Valley thinks about, about God, if at all, in some kind of vague way. And you think maybe he's just distant. God is detached, scrutinizing. Maybe he's harsh. Maybe he's just disapproving. Maybe he's just trying to control me. Others of you are here and you're thinking, you know what, I kind of graduated from that view of God. I've moved on from that because that wasn't that helpful for me. Um, so my view has evolved, and what I now believe about God is that he's kind of a life force. You know, he's an energy and a power that we can find within each and every one of us. You know, it's sort of like in Star Wars, and imagine hearing Obi-Wan Kenobi saying, use the force, Luke. You know, like some way where you're trying to harness the power of God for you, what you want for your life. So we often think about him as maybe he's personal, but he's distant. Or maybe he's very near with us, and yet utterly impersonal and faceless. Regardless of what you think about God, the God we see in Exodus 3 is one who finds us at our worst, even when we believe we have absolutely nothing to offer, and he calls us by name just because He loves us. That's the first thing I want us to see. He's a God who seeks. Now the second thing you begin to notice in this passage as you go through it is this is a God who disrupts. I mean, he just is going to bring disruption. We know how this story is going to go. This is part one of the disruption. It shows up in Moses' life. You see it from verse 5 all the way through verse 10. God is saying to him, All right, to Moses, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then way down in verse 10, God says this to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You know what happens to Moses as he meets God? God. He had that nice, comfortable life. He's not had to think about Egypt for 40 years. He's settled in. He's got a wife. He's got a family. And God shows up and disrupts his life. It's disruptive. And maybe God was just an abstract idea to Moses until now. Maybe he hadn't given much thought to God at all. He wasn't praying. He wasn't seeking him. He's Mildly curious. But as he encountered God at the burning bush, from that moment on, for Moses, God was no longer just an interesting idea. God was this fire, a real-life encounter with the living God, a burning bush that didn't consume the tree. And I want us to think about that metaphor for a second and this image that's given here. It's not a metaphor, actually. It's just an image. But think about a bush burning it's not out of control it's not a wild brush fire so he's going to run from it it's curious but it's also inviting and alluring i'm thinking of like a giant campfire something warm something cozy and the thing about fires is as you're moving towards it you feel it you know you feel that warmth on your face you hear the fire that's crackling you smell the smoke. You can't even taste it, you know, on the s'mores or whatever else. But here's the thing. It just overwhelms your senses. You experience fire. You don't just believe in fire. You experience it, right? And that's why at Christmas time when I go on YouTube or something, it kind of tries to bump up the ad for the fireplace image. You know, you know what I'm talking about? And it just doesn't do it for me. You can't smell it. You can't feel it. They can add in the little crackly sound and turn up the volume on the mix and all of that. But it doesn't overwhelm your senses. It's not that great, you know? And here, Moses is experiencing God in all of the warmth and the allure of a beautiful fire. It's captivating. It's beautiful. It's mesmerizing, all of that stuff. And yet... In that same moment of warmth and invitation to draw near to it, he also realizes this is scary. It's dangerous. It's a threat. It's something we all know we cannot ultimately and finally control. Fire. One theologian was reflecting on why does God reveal himself in such a modest way? You know, because later on, you're going to get the big special effects in so many ways. God could have shown up as a wildfire out of control, but Moses would have run away. But a burning bush that isn't consumed, I mean, it's inviting, it's alluring, but you also realize it's dangerous. You can't touch it, you can't shape it. God is a fire, something you cannot manipulate. Manipulate. You can't get your arms around it. You can't touch it. You know, Moses talks about God as a fire in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12 to the people of Israel. He says, You know, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. He appears as fire because it symbolizes and expresses. The ineffability of God. And that is, you can't really capture the fullness of who he is. Why? Because he is not of material substance. This mysterious contradiction of a burning bush that is not consumed. It doesn't make sense scientifically. It reminds us of something else. The unapproachable purity of God and his holiness. This is why Moses is commanded to take off your sandals in verse 5. His holiness burns like a fire. And it's expressed in the wrath against every form of evil. I mean, you think about even in the Old Testament where there was a, a, two guys, Nadab and Abihu. These are sons of Aaron. One day they decided to say, you know what, let's go in the temple and worship God. It wasn't supposed to be their time. They weren't invited in. And you know what happened to them? They were consumed by the fire of God. Because God is holy. You know, it reminds us of the description of Jesus in the book of Revelation. That his face was like a sun shining brightly. His eyes like blazing fire, and his feet like burnished bronze, the fire of God, the fiery presence, right? Whether it's in a little bush, or whether it's in the glorious Son of God, we all understand this is dangerous. This is not some cuddly thing. And Moses understood this is why he was afraid. You can't demote our Father who art in heaven into just a buddy that you just put your arms around he realizes as inviting as he is, he is also a holy God, a consuming fire who hates that which is contrary to his righteous character. And Exodus 3 is saying, if you don't know that about God, I don't know if you really, really know God. Because Moses has gone from this abstract belief in God to experiencing his warmth, his beauty, And is overwhelmed with his holiness all at the same time. And now, from this point on to Moses, God is no longer just an idea. It's not kind of a book you can read about. It's not a God he just goes to. He puts on a shelf and brings down occasionally, okay? It's not something he admires from far away. It's not something you control, It's not something you do like a hobby, something you do in your spare time to take God up. But from this moment on, for Moses, God was a fire that disrupted every aspect of his life. And this is why in verse 10, God says to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt that's disruptive wait a second he ran away from that place remember okay dangerous inconvenient how do i explain this to my wife my father-in-law who expects me to tend to sheep you got a lot of conversation to have okay a whole lot going on here and you begin to ask yourself all right what does this mean for me how do we think about this look if you're here and you're a christian And if your relationship with God, in your relationship with God, you never feel him disrupting you or interrupting you. If the things you read in the Bible are not making you think twice before you make decisions about how to use your time, what you do with your body, what you do with your money, if you never feel God disrupting you. I think the passage is trying to ask you, perhaps the God you know Maybe this God is not the Lord who showed up in the burning bush that wasn't consumed. But perhaps that's a God of your own making. That's the first thing I think this is pushing up against because God disrupts. I think some of you know what I'm talking about. You felt that conviction because you have a relationship that remains unresolved. And you feel heavy in your heart because you're like, gosh, This is hard. I don't want to deal with it. But I just feel God pushing me toward, how do I reconcile with my roommate? How do I reconcile with my family member who's hurt me so badly? How do I reconcile and confront someone who did something wrong? Because it's easier to just let it go. And God is saying, no, no, no. I want my people to live in peace. I want people to work things out. And that's disruptive. It's stressful, okay? If you know the living God, we know he interrupts us on a regular basis and you should expect that. That's the first thing, just, just keep that in mind. And let me ask you this, how has been do- he been doing that in your life lately? In the goals you set, you know, in the way you're thinking about your life? Is he coming in and stirring things up? turning everything upside down based on who he is and what he's done in your life. See? The thing is, this God always interrupts. And it's not just in Moses' life or in our lives, but if you look at verse 7, notice what he says. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmaster's I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. You know what God is saying here? God's plan is to actually disrupt human history. He's saying, I'm going to disrupt human history. I've seen the suffering of my people. I've heard their cries. I know they are suffering. And this word no, it's not like some third Party knowledge about information you know the kind of information you have for jeopardy or if you're on a game show it's not just a fact he's saying i have firsthand experience i experienced their suffering as it were my own and this god is saying i am going to disrupt human history because that's what he's going to do in egypt in order to free the people of israel because here is a small group of people who are oppressed There is great injustice here, and God is saying, I am going to do something about it. This is good news for us when you begin to realize this is who God says I am in the scriptures. So he's a God who disrupts. Last thing, and this is the third point, we see that he is a God not only who seeks, a God who not only disrupts, but a God who is who he is. And this is verse 14. Do you see here when Moses is like, well, who am I supposed to tell? What what am I supposed to say when they say, well, who sent you? Who shall I say has sent me? God says to Moses in verse 14, I am who I am. And he says, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, this is really the climax of the passage in so many ways. It's the revelation of the divine name of God. And scholars have been wrestling with the meaning of this phrase, I am who I am, for thousands of years, so I'm not going to do justice to it in five minutes, okay? And I want to highlight just one thing for you. This phrase is notoriously difficult to translate. And if you have a physical Bible with you, you may see there's a little footnote on it. And if you click it, it will tell you. It could be, I am who I am. It could also mean, I will be what I will be, or I will do what I will do. I will cause what I will cause. So think about this for a second, All right? Moses asked God, basically, what is your name? Who should I tell the people when they ask me who sent me? And God's response is, he doesn't answer the question. He says, I am who I am, Moses. I will be what I will be. I will do what I will do. And what all the scholars say, at the least what is going on here is God is asserting his absolute independence from everything else in the universe, his sovereignty. He's like, I'm not bound by time. I am not bound by space. I am the creator. You don't get to define me. You don't get to pick and choose what you like or don't like about me. You don't get to make me after your own image and shape me. This is going to come up again in Exodus 32 with the golden calf, right? And he says, I am who I am. I will be what I will be. It's his sovereignty, his independence, the freedom absolute freedom that god has that is his holy name and for thousands of years think about it people were afraid to utter the name of god in the scriptures so when the rabbis came across the letters that spells out Yahweh in the scriptures they simply substituted the familiar word adonai which means my lord because it was too holy to say. You know, th- years later, there was a little problem because the Latin Christian scholars, when they were translating the Bible from Hebrew to Latin, mistakenly added the vowels for the word Adonai to God's name, Yahweh, or what is known as the Tetragomenon. And when you put it together and put it, spell it out in Latin, you know what it says? Jehovah. Okay? And that kind of caught on. People are like, we like this, Jehovah. And all of that mistaken, you know, vocabulary came about because people were afraid to pronounce the name of God. It was too great and too holy. And now you might be sitting here, it's like, okay, now you've scared me, Iron, okay? Why do I want a God in my life Who is saying, I will do what I will do. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. What if he wants me to do stuff I don't want to do? What if he's capricious? What if he's mean? What if he's just like doing things just for fun? How could I possibly trust God if he could even for a second be anything like that? And I think that's a good question and a right question. I think we find the answer months later in the scriptures because generations would pass generation upon generation until someone again invokes the name of God in a unique way. Because in John chapter 8 you see Jesus having this debate not with the Roman elites but he confronts the religious leaders in Israel itself. And he's telling the religious powers, you know what, I've come to free the enslaved. I've come to forgive sin. I've come to bring salvation. And they're all saying, who are you? You are nobody. You didn't even go to rabbinical school. At least we are the heirs of Abraham. And Jesus has a line that if you put on, I guess, Twitter... It's like one of those mic drop moments. You have no response to it. Because in John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And up until that point, it was a contentious conversation, a hard one. It was a civil one with those religious leaders. But the moment Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, They all knew what he was saying. They all knew he's saying, I am who I am. I will be what I will be. These people picked up stones ready to kill him for being blasphemous. Because Jesus was claiming, I am God himself. The God who met Moses in the bush. Who established his own sovereignty and independence and autonomy and freedom. And he's saying, I am that God. And what does this mean for us? Listen, it's a God we worship in his infinite freedom under no obligation at all, uses his freedom not to control us or abuse us, but rather to come down to be rejected by us To come as an infant. To live the life we can never live. To experience brutality at the hands of his creation. To choose to die in our place. If that's what the God who says, I will do what I will do, has actually done. Maybe he's a God who can be trusted. Maybe he's a God who won't abuse us, who actually will love us and will save us. You see, if Christianity is really true, then the God who came down to rescue us from our own enslavement, he came and his people killed him. But in the greatest reversal that the human race has ever seen, God used that very act of violence, that act of violence that really sealed our guilt as people who deserve the judgment of God, God turned that as a power to bring salvation. Because on the cross, Jesus didn't just die at the hands of his creatures. He also died in our place, didn't he? He was consumed by the judgment and the fire of God, by God's holiness, which we instinctively know is a threat to us. Jesus enters into that to be caught up, to be burnt as a sacrifice on our behalf. And in that same voice that once cried out, Moses, Moses, on the cross, Jesus cries out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the storyline of the Bible, you see? This is a God who says, I am who I am. I will be what I will be. He uses his sovereignty, his power, his freedom to die on the cross, to save us from ourselves, and to call us his own. Gosh, like, if God is willing to do that, I mean, this is the best news there possibly could be. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. But it also means this is a God when he comes and it disrupts our lives. He's not doing it for other reasons that because he loves us and he has a great purpose for us. You know, when I was pastoring in San Francisco many years ago, this is 20 plus years ago, there was a woman in our congregation who really loved uh, Jesus and when I got to know her, and I'm just trying to figure out, why did you move to San Francisco? She uttered the words, we all know is true about us, but we never want to admit, which is, she said, I moved here to get rich. You know? <laughs> I came to San Francisco to make it. And she was killing it professionally. I mean, she had the really nice apartment with the view of the Golden Gate Bridge. She had her convertible sports car. Amazing vacations, hanging out with friends, going out, all that wonderful stuff. But she was also incredibly tender-hearted, especially for those most vulnerable in the city. And she went weekly to serve meals to the homeless, wash their feet, care for their needs, befriend them, share the good news of Jesus. And as she was doing this, something started to happen. God began to disrupt her nice, tidy plan to get rich. And before you you knew it, I mean, her heart grew for these folks in such a way. She was so captivated by God's heart for the poor, she left her cushy job and started working full-time to serve the homeless at a ministry. And here's the thing. She didn't go kicking and screaming. She didn't go thinking, My stock options, you know, like, (laughs) she went with great joy. God disrupted her life. You know, and maybe God doesn't disrupt everyone's lives in that same way. Now, one of my closest friends, um, he went to a very elite, you know, uh, university back in the northeast. He was in medical school, came to faith in college. After finishing his first year in medical school, he got called into ministry. He went home, told his non-believing family and parents that he was doing this. They thought he was crazy, of course. God disrupts our lives sometimes. But sometimes he does it in small ways. He won't leave you alone if you have a relationship with him. My friends, he may be convicting you of something smaller like a personal sin that you've not tended to and just let it grow. And maybe God is saying part of the disruption today is stop nurturing that. Say no, because you've met me. You know, as we wrestle with this question, who is the Lord? The God of the scriptures, the God we worship, is the one we owe everything to. If that's the case, why would you not trust him?
1: Yeah.
0: This is the God of the burning bush, the God who says, I'm the great I am, the God who comes and disrupts our lives, but the God who also seeks us in love. Give yourself to Him. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who not only is holy, but who loves us so deeply that you reach out to us in love and it came most clearly demonstrated to us on the cross we ask that this morning lord whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time that we would experience afresh in you the wonder of your love and your power so that our lives would be given to you father thank you again and we ask these things in christ's precious name amen